Good morning, church. Hi, everyone. My name is Ray. I'm just here to give us uh, the Bible reading this morning. Uh, The Bible reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. So, yeah, here at CBE Church, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, And, yeah, we believe that it's not just words spoken by people, but, um, yeah, it's actually from God's Word. So if you're after maybe a complimentary copy of the Bible, feel free to grab one on the bookshelves at the back. Uh, So this morning's Bible reading comes from Acts chapter 6, and we're reading from uh, verse 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among, among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanon, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert from Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose from the members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. When they secretly persuaded, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They, see, they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is God's word. All right, thank you, Ray. Well, morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Matt, one of the pastors here at CPU. Keep your Bibles open if you do have them open. Uh, we're going to be having a look at that part of Acts this morning. But uh, that question we asked before, what would you risk your life for? You know, I've seen people risk their lives for silly things. And I was reading a news article today about how uh, social media influencers in Thailand in particular have been really pushing the boundaries of what they would risk their life for to get the perfect picture. Now here's one such picture, there's a particular cliff there which is a perfect sort of spot for that photo and there would be just influencer after influencer would line up to take that photo risking life and limb for what? For a few likes, uh, for a few, kind of trying to impress people that they don't even know and I thought this is crazy. 
This is crazy. It says something about our world, doesn't it? About the sort of things that we value that we would risk our lives for. Now, you know, I, I found myself thinking, and, and this is terrible. I, I know this is terrible. I thought, found myself thinking, you know what, if a few social media influencers just happened to slip off that cliff and disappear into the cavern below, it wouldn't be a great loss to us, really, as a society. I mean, what do they, what do they really bring uh, to us as a, as a society? Terrible thinking. Terrible, I know. Now, on the other hand, I also see and hear about other people, wartime journalists in Ukraine right now, risking life and limb to report back to the rest of the world about what's happening over there in Ukraine. Seriously brave stuff. But what would you risk your life for? For your family? Your country? For a movement? For an idea? Sadly, I actually don't think many people have many things that they would be willing to give their life for. Uh, on one of the discussions on the internet, uh, an anonymous forum member wrote this. He said, I've never, found, uh, never really found something I'm passionate about to risk my life for it. Most people would say family or a significant other, but that ain't me. Somebody else would sacrifice for a cause they believe in, for, for the greater good. But I think most of us wouldn't die for anything. It's sad to say but we care about ourselves way too much. We value our own lives above those of others, like it's some big contest to see who's best. I hope one day it's not like this, but today, I don't think many people would die for anything besides themselves. Now, I think in some ways that's sad and yet true, isn't it? Sad to kind of think that, well, we don't have something that we think is so valuable for us that we'd be willing to give our life for, and yet so true because we know deep in ourselves that when life's so good, and particularly in places of, that are affluent like Brisbane in 2020, that why would you risk the good life you have now for anything or for anyone else? But, you know, it is actually a bit different, for I think, for those who do live in hard places, those who see the hardships, who see oppression, perhaps, who see persecution... You know, I mean, maybe even some of your parents have stories or your grandparents are risking life and limb. Maybe it was for the sake of their family, for you. You see, today is all about risking your life for something that's worth risking it for. And you see, the whole story of Acts has been about this, the early church and the mission to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. See, until now, the church has only existed there in Jerusalem, nowhere else. It's not gone global yet. It's still there in the suburbs of Jerusalem. But that's all going to change. And we're going to see this turning point happen here in Acts chapter 6 and 7. It's going to take this tragic and violent moment to do it. So if you want to follow on with where we're going, here's a quick outline of where we're going. Uh, It's all about the blood of the first martyr, the first death, the first person who gives their life for the sake of the church. You see, today we join the story there in Acts chapter 6. Last week we saw that there was a rising opposition to the apostles. Uh, Then we saw that actually, well, you could throw the apostles in jail, but even that couldn't stop God's mission. In fact, if anything, it emboldened the apostles. It emboldened the church. The church just got together afterwards and celebrated and went, hey, let's go out and continue preaching the gospel. God is behind this. Now, at this point, no one had died. No one had given their life uh, for the sake of the mission. And at this point, things are still going well. The church is growing. Hundreds, maybe even thousands are joining each week and are starting to get noticed. 
But with every movement, the success of the church and the rapid growth of it is starting to cause problems. See, read with me in verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, see, the first thing that that we see happening in the state of the church is, well, there's a dispute. There's a dispute about a kind of racial favoritism, if you like. It's between the treatment of Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews and the treatment of their widows. Now, to give you, paint you the picture, the church is growing, right? It's not expected to, unexpected to see these sorts of conflicts happen when you've got a big group of people who are joining this movement and it's growing rapidly. It's a very real slice of life in the church. Now, the Hellenistic Jews are, are those Jews who probably spoke Greek, Right? The Greek was the common language of the ancient world at the time. It's the English uh, of the time. Uh, the Hebraic Jews, they, they kind of spoke the original Hebrew language, right? the, the language of the Jews, the more traditional ones. Right? Now, some of you know this because uh, if you're anything like me or maybe you're an Australian-born Chinese, you actually can't speak any any of your mother tongue. And, and just the other day, uh, one of my neighbours came up and just started talking to me in Cantonese. You know, just start talking to me for about 20, 30 seconds until we just realise you don't understand a bar of this, do you? Just none of it. And I could tell straight away that he was immediately just kind of looking down at me like, like, what's wrong with you? What, like, what kind, of, what kind of Chinese are you? You know, it's a bit like that, isn't it? And you can kind of feel that happening here in the early church. Well, hey, we speak the original Hebrew language and, and we're the ones who are original and legit. And you guys, you Greek-speaking, you... And so there's this conflict going on. Now, I think this is a really interesting moment. Uh, It's a real, very real uh, slice of life of the church. But it's beginning to really affect the unity of the church. And so it comes to the attention of the apostles. See, verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, I'd love to spend lots of time unpacking just this little uh, paragraph here because it's so relevant. You know, someone who's involved in the leadership of a church here at CPE, uh, this is the sort of stuff that we do wrestle with all the time, right? Uh, where do we spend our time when there's so many important needs to be happening here in the midst of church? But let me just make a few quick observations, a few quick observations, because we're going to really move on to Stephen and, and what happens after that. But let me, let me quickly focus on a few things, okay? Uh, the first thing is that the preaching of the word and the practical care of people are both important. They're both important in the life of church, right? You can't neglect one or neglect the other, right? You see, if you neglect preaching, well, then the church can't grow. People won't hear the gospel, the good news about Jesus. We're supposed to be witnesses to the world. You see, you want pastors and leaders who who can counsel people, care for people, show love to people, but you don't ever want that to be at the cost of the preaching of the word because because that's that's how the church will grow. See, I've seen churches who are led by, by uh, counsellors who have kind of just really withered and died. People were well looked after, but the church never grew. 
On the other hand, neglect practical care and it starts to affect the unity of the church or it starts to affect the witness of love and generosity that should be part of our witness to the world. So yes, something as mundane as the equal distribution of of food within the church is important, is important. And both of them, as we're going to see, require people empowered strongly by the Holy Spirit. But I think the second point is this. Actually, as a church grows, it will need to get more organized. It will need to get more structured the bigger it gets. You know, quite often you hear about, uh, you, you hear this complaint, and particularly, actually, it is amongst churches like CPE. You know, what are we, 250, 300 people in a church, and we're just getting bigger, and it starts to feel a bit different. And as we grow, that's a good thing. That's a sign of the growth and the activity of the word here in the midst of us as a church. But then people start to say, oh, we liked it when it was family and organic and and it's starting to feel too structured and corporate. And and, Well, actually, even here in the early church, you start to see that exact same tension arising, right? You need to get organized. If you want to care for people, if you want to keep preaching the word, that means actually uh, uh, people doing the things that they're best at, preachers to preach, carers to care, musicians to play, welcomers to welcome, cooks to provide fellowship lunches. You see, the whole body plays its part so that the church will continue to grow and to be all that it's called to be. And so see, that's why at CP we focus so much on teams and team leaders, because this is what it's like. This is what it's always been like from the beginning. Now let's see how this plays out here within the church. Verse 5. The proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Procurus, Niancor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch who convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So what do we see as they get organized, as they, they appoint these seven men out to, to look after the, the caring of the widows there and within the church? What do we see? We see the word spreading, people joining rapidly into the church. In fact, a number of priests are joining and becoming obedient to the faith. It's a good thing. But we also meet Stephen. Stephen, one of the appointed leaders of the church now. Not one of the apostles on the front line preaching in the synagogues as much, but still involved, still preaching, but primarily caring for the people. Verse 8, read on with me. Now Stephen, a man full of God's power and grace, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, the Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This man never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So let me ask you, what do you think was so offensive about what Stephen was preaching? Well, I actually think that uh, what he was doing was just radically expounding Christ. 
And see, what happens when you start explaining Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, as the one in whom uh, you can have your sins dealt with, atoned for, forgiven, that as he embodies the temple and, and, and provides a new way of access to the Father, yes, that is seen as a threat by the Jewish religious establishment. See, all of those things are things that the temple and the priests and, and so on were supposed to provide. And so Stephen is dragged before the Sanhedrin and asked about whether these things are true. Now, what happens next is astonishing, astonishing and shocking. See, what Stephen does, and I'm going to kind of summarize really the first half of chapter 7 for you. Uh, Stephen, he, he starts to, to preach, and essentially he starts to recap the Old Testament. And he preaches his way from Abraham and the journey to the promised land through the patriarchs, and then into slavery in Egypt, and then how God worked to save Egypt, uh, to save Israel from Egypt through Moses. Now, at that point, he hadn't really said anything controversial. That's just there. That's just the story of Exodus. But what he says next starts a riot. It starts a riot. Verse 37. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to them. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and revealed in what their own hands had uh, and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away, uh, God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. See, Stephen's not making any of this up. He's actually simply explaining the story of the Exodus. He's saying that Israel have always rejected their prophets and saviors, just as they rejected Moses and the law. But then he closes off his argument with this damning conclusion. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are always uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. You see, Stephen's critique has this kind of prophetic effect, really. So the people, he's he's speaking to the people, he's claiming that, hey, you are following in the footsteps of those, your ancestors, who persecuted the prophets and who murdered Jesus. You are living this out yourselves now, right here, as you continue to persecute the apostles who are preaching the message about Jesus. They become the very thing that Stephen says that they are by turning into this angry, violent mob. I've only ever seen a big, angry mob like this once in my life. It wasn't actually here in Australia. It was overseas in a slum in Africa, and it is a terrifying thing. With no law enforcement, no riot police to come in and break it up, it's a terrifying thing. So I just want us to stop and acknowledge this is Stephen's bravery to kind of speak courageously truth, to convict and to, 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 to speak the truth to this people, to defend the gospel. 
But what happens next is one of the most horrific moments in the whole of the Bible, I think. Verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. See, I actually want us just to pause for a moment and just take in the full horror of what's happened. The mob surround him. What started as a debate in a Sanhedrin courtroom turns into a violent and bloodthirsty execution. They were so angry, they'd lost all control. They blatantly murdered him. I actually think Luke kind of protects us a little bit from all the gory details of this stoning. I mean, this is like the M version as opposed to the MA or the R version, right? See, stoning is this... Is, is this most primitive and barbaric way to kill someone. So you don't miss the horror of this situation. Now, at a stony, you can kind of protect yourself for a short while, but truth is, with an angry mob surrounding you, it's only a matter of time. And so Luke describes Stephen there, calm, collected, eyes only for Jesus. But eventually, as rocks start to break, ribs, limbs, skull... He loses consciousness and the mob finish the job. I mean, this is horrific. Put yourselves in the shoes of a witness. Put yourselves in the shoes of the early church as they're hearing and seeing this unfold. Fascinating, though, as we see Stephen himself remain calm and collected. In fact, I think Luke very intentionally means us to see the parallels the parallels with another prisoner who stood there before the same court, facing very similar offences to Stephen. See, Stephen was really just mimicking the Lord Jesus as he stands there calmly stating the truth. Yet too, Jesus was found guilty of blasphemy and judged worthy of death in the most excruciating of executions. Yet Jesus' response wasn't of anger or despair, but of forgiveness and of peace. You see, back in Luke, uh, as Luke records Jesus' death, the verses there say that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And at the end, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, church, the followers of Jesus will carry the marks of their Messiah. Just as Jesus was hated and persecuted, so his church will be too, and his followers. And we're going to tease out a little bit more of what that might mean for us today, later. 
Well, this incident finishes with a small but, but important detail that there was a young man named Saul present. Saul, who would, you might know, later becomes, converts and becomes a Christian. But at this moment, this was the Saul who becomes now the prime persecutor of the church, having witnessed what's happened here. And you see Saul giving approval for the violence that's gone on here. He now is inspired by this, inspired by this, and now creating his own lynch mob, goes around persecuting the church door to door. Read on with me. Verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now we'll see more of Saul in the future, but just notice what happened. You see, the persecution against the church did exactly what God wanted it to do. The church scatters from Jerusalem throughout Judea and Samaria. See, remember this? Remember this mission? The mission, the witnesses that are going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And this very moment of persecution against the church was the thing that we saw pushes, forces Christians out into the surrounding countryside. And what do they do as they do that? They go preaching the gospel wherever they went. You see, the very moment, the very act designed to crush the church actually spreads it, spreads it across the countryside and by it becomes the mechanism by which it grows and the witness to Jesus starts to spread. You see, I'd like to say that Stephen Stoning and the persecution that follows was, was just an isolated event, you know, a horrific moment in the story of Acts or in the story of the church. But the truth is, the church uh, continued to face this persecution for the next 250 to 300 years. See, under the Roman emperors uh, who demanded that the empire would swear to the emperor and they would uh, have to sacrifice to the Roman gods or face the consequences, Christians continued to defy that. And many of them faced the consequences. Those who suffered under threat of jail or being thrown to wild beasts or the destruction of churches, being crucified, being mauled in the Colosseum. You see, uh, the blood of the martyrs was the way in which the church spread. This was a little uh, message, uh, this was something that uh, was written by Tacitus, who was the main Roman historian of the time. Uh, he was writing about the, the rise of the, of the Jewish sect, as they called it back then. Um, this was just in uh, AD 64, so this is early on. And what had happened was there was a great big fire had broken out in Rome, and the emperor at the time, looking for a scapegoat, blamed it on the Christians. So Tacitus records this uh, as his uh, documentation of what happened. First then, the confessed members of the sect were arrested. Next, on their disclosures, vast numbers were convicted, not so much on the can of arson as for hatred of the human race, and derision accompanied their end. They were covered with wild beast skins and torn to death by dogs, or they were fastened on crosses, and when daylight failed, were burned to serve as lamps by light." You know, isn't that just unbelievable, horrific to kind of think about? To think that that's what the early church went through. 
but just as we saw here in Acts. Yes, from this little sect that was so spurned by Roman society, continued to grow. In fact, it continued to grow over that entire period of persecution to the point where in 1313, the Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity and issued an edict to finally end the persecution of Christians in the empire. You see, the church that had been so maligned, oppressed, persecuted, conquered an entire empire. In fact, the greatest empire the world has ever seen. Not through violence, not through military power, through the blood of the martyrs and through the preaching of the gospel. You see, you might have heard this saying that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It was written by a bloke called Tertullian in, uh, in the second century AD. This is a full quote. This is the full quote. We are not a new philosophy but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You praise those who endured pain and death so long as they aren't Christians. Your cruelties merely prove our innocence of the crimes you charge against us. And you frustrate your purpose. Because those who see us die wonder why we do. For we die like the men you revere, not like slaves or criminals. And when they find out, they join us. You see what he's saying? Second century, early church, you kill some of us, and then more and more people join, fascinated by the the, the reasons that these men would calmly and just face the persecution and would stand for their Lord and Saviour. And more and more people would notice this, and Christians would gain more and more uh, notoriety within the empire as being those ones who who would just go to the point of death. And so the church grew. And it would spread its seeds far and wide. But friends, this is not just 1st, 2nd century AD. This is today. All across the world. Nigeria, China, North Korea, Iran, Iraq, Egypt. The church continues to face this kind of level of persecution. So my question is this. What are you willing to risk for the sake of the gospel? What is the cost and the sacrifice that you are willing to bear? How will you bear the marks of the Messiah? Yes, friends, we live in a different time and a different world. And yes, there is pressure in our secular world right now here, but it's not on that same level. See, I think our biggest problem is not the threat of being thrown to lions. Actually, I think the bigger threat for us is just the comfortable lives that we live that's so free from physical danger. We are so, we're deep down, I think, in so many ways, we are like that forum poster. In truth, we just don't have anything that we feel is worth dying for. We like our lives. We like our comfort. We like the good things we can get our hands on. We like the food that we can eat and just enjoy and not worry about those bigger issues, the bigger mission, the bigger anything that's going on in the world. You know, sometimes I wonder that maybe this growing hostility against Christians might even be a good thing, might, might stir us from our stupor, from our slumber. Because the truth is, I wonder if we are a bit unfit, we are just a bit plump and we're comfortable cruising to the tune of our secular world, chasing after what the secular world likes and wants, riches and achievement, comfortable lives. You know, recently I've been watching uh, a television 
Oh, it's called Andor. It's a Star Wars uh, television show. It's a great show, by the way, if you're looking for something to watch over Christmas. And it's, it's all about the, the, the birth of the rebellion. And it's all about the lives of those who would risk life and limb, who would make sacrifices for the sake of the rebellion to kind of beat the, the, the big evil empire. But it got me thinking, I mean, here I am just watching and being entertained by seeing other people in this other universe in a fake world that, 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 that are sacrificing their lives for the sake of this rebellion. Thinking, here we are, I'm wanting to be entertained by this stuff. Looking and, and in a fantasy world, kind of finding some of that, that purpose to live for, to die for. Well, church, we have that purpose. God has given it to us. He has given us that mission, the mission for which is worth risking life and limb for, to make sacrifices for. Our sacrifices may not be as radical as for the sake of, uh, for the sake of the king. It won't be as radical or dramatic as Stephen's, perhaps. I mean, let's remember that in Acts, Stephen's death itself is an extraordinary act in itself. In fact, but so much of what we hear about the church is about this radical love generosity, about preaching and evangelism, about fellowship, teaching, all the ordinary stuff. You see, maybe the challenge that we are to take for this is to go, well, do we take those things seriously? Seriously enough to sacrifice for it? See, church, what would you risk and sacrifice for the sake of the church and of its mission? What sacrifice would you take to care for someone in need? What sacrifice would it take for you to help us to meet budget this year or to support our mission partners? What sacrifice would it take to help to teach and train the next generation of our kids and of our youth? What would it take to risk your neck for the sake of evangelism or taking that next step with those friends that you've been praying for this term? When I was talking to a friend recently who described the comfort of telling uh, their parents about the fact that they were uh, planning on taking their family overseas to be missionaries. And the parents who were Christian pushed back strongly with the, 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 the line, you're risking our grandchildren's future. And I just thought, yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of it, isn't it? See, life's so good here that we don't want to risk anything for the sake of the gospel or its mission. And I wonder deep down whether we all have some level of that complacency within us. So church, here's the challenge. The challenge from Acts chapter 6 and 7 of Stephen and of the things that followed. This is the challenge that we've got to ask ourselves where and how it is that we bear the marks of our Messiah. As Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you, uh, before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. You see, church, when you face the risks and the sacrifice of what it means to follow Jesus and to lay down your life for the mission and for the church, you are following in the footsteps of your Messiah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We are shocked and grieved to read about Stephen's death here in Acts. Just as we are as we look around the world and know that our many brothers and sisters around it face the same kind of pressure and persecution in, in, the, in the same way. But Father, we pray that this would not be something that we see as a barrier or something to shy away from, but Father, something to give us courage, boldness, to see that the, the risks and the sacrifice for your kingdom are worth it, to know that no matter how many things might be against us, Lord, your word is unstoppable. Father, please be with us, change our hearts, move us from our comfort zones, that we might indeed lay down our lives for you and for the sake of the church which you love. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, church, so why don't you take a moment to reflect on some of those things uh, while we hear a bit of music, and then uh, we'll pray after that.